The rest of you, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7, we're going to be reading through 17. verses starting with verse 10 through 17. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Today's scripture is one of those popular Christmas passages. Those passages that point to Jesus Christ from the Old Testament or the story of Jesus Christ's birth from the New Testament. This one right here specifically mentions the virgin birth. The questions come up, what would happen if we didn't have the virgin birth? There was a guy who was really popular, especially in youth ministry circles a number of years ago, named Rob Bell. So many churches had and used his NUMA videos, but eventually came out that he was against very key Christian doctrines, and even those who were willfully blind about him had to acknowledge this. But well before that, there was signs that there was something wrong. In Sunday school, I thought we were talking about uh, apologetics. And when it comes to non-Christian cults, one of the first targets, or always the first target, always seems to be Jesus Christ. Anytime somebody says something against Jesus Christ, against our understanding of who Jesus is, his very nature, that's like warning Will Robinson, warning. Because he said that if we lost the virgin birth, he said, I almost can quote it in his book, that let's say we found out definitive evidence that Jesus Christ, his dad, was a guy named Larry, and at his, his conclusions that we wouldn't lose much. If Jesus Christ's dad, his name's Larry, we lose everything. If there's no virgin birth, there's no Emmanuel, we're lost in our sins, we should be pitied more than all others, but no, Jesus was born of a virgin according to the word of God. When it comes to missionaries, as, as uh, Bob was talking about, actually, he actually mentioned Romans chapter 10. I was smiling at that because if you remember last week, I said, the verses that we're going to be using for this whole series for Advent is Romans chapter 10. Because we see in Romans chapter 10, this, uh, this, great, this great need for a people, because it says in, in Joel, Paul the Apostle quotes from the prophet Joel, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
He says after that kind of one of the most obvious statements, how can they call on him who they've not believed? And how can they believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? We try so much to weasel ourselves out of that one right there. We try to think there's all these other ways people can come to Jesus Christ. No, only one way does anyone come to the Father, that's through Christ. Only one way people come to Christ, that's through preaching of the word. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And how can they preach unless they are sent? Missions is important. Whether around the world or across the street, all of us are missionaries. These verses explain the missionary. The missionary, they see the problem. The missionary, they know the solution. And finally, the missionary is sent. Last week in the scriptures from chapter 8 and 9 of Isaiah, we talked about the problem. Here's the problem, is that we have this great spiritual need. But we go towards anything else and we left ourselves in darkness. And it's thick darkness. And it creates this this hunger in our spirit that can't be satisfied anywhere else. And people in that darkness, they look to the earth, they see only gloom, and they curse their God and King. When I talk about Christmas verses, as I did just before here, I'm referring to those verses that tell us about the first coming of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to this earth, the first advent. The first Christmas verse, however, can be found all the way back in Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The very first prophecy of a Messiah, as soon as man fell, God had the answer. He had the solution. In verse 15 of chapter 3 of Genesis, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent, the devil himself. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Last week we were in Isaiah and in Isaiah we saw those prophetic verses about Jesus. But if we go a chapter before here, we have yet another Christmas passage in Isaiah chapter 7. And that is having to do deal with the king of Ahaz. God tells him, ask for a sign. And he doesn't want to ask for that sign. So God gives him a sign. For the last, I don't know how long, we've been going over this series on the second half of Genesis about the male leaders of the Jewish people, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. You know, as you read later on in scripture, you see that these men are so revered. They're seen as really some of the most righteous people who have ever lived. Yet, we read in Genesis, they're a mess. They try their best, and the harder they try, the worse it gets. Excuse me here. I have to have my phone out here so I make sure I'm not to go over time today. I told Bob I was going to be flexible. And maybe I meant you guys have to be flexible as you hear me. Uh, I've got 10 pages here. We'll see what happens. Um, but these people, even though they're the ones who are looked, looked up to in the rest of the scripture amongst the Jewish people, they were a mess. The harder they tried, the worse it got. And from one generation to the next, it seemed like evil just was either, it started in one generation, it was tolerated in the next, and then finally improved on in that third and fourth generation. Until one from the line of Adam, from the line of Abraham, he is sent ahead of his family. Though the physical means is trickery and violence, when it comes time for an accounting, he refuses to take vengeance. And it's through him that God physically saves the world. But Joseph from the Old Testament, he's not righteous enough. He's not good enough to save his people from their sins. His change doesn't even last from generation to generation. 
Even Moses isn't enough. Moses in Deuteronomy lamented after he'd given the law because he said, you don't have a new heart yet. And you need a new heart if you're going to truly follow the law of God. As we get to Isaiah chapter 7, we see this guy named King Ahaz. King Ahaz was a bad dude. His grandpa wasn't. His grandpa Uzziah was one of the few righteous kings of Judea. But when he grew old, he became proud and he burned incense in the temple of the Lord, which was a big no-no for the king. Just because you're the king doesn't mean you're the sovereign, especially of God's kingdom, because he's the only true king. And he gave it to the priests. He gave it to the Levites to burn the incense. But he does so anyway, and God strikes him with leprosy. Sin starts then in Uzziah, and then his son, Jotham, is no better than he, but it's Ahaz who really makes a name for himself when it comes to vice, when it comes to sin. It is into this area that God sends his prophet, Isaiah. Isaiah is a missionary of sorts. His mission field, however, is the kings of Judah. He is a bold man. He tells them what God says and not what they want to hear. And God, send us more men and women like that. You know, one of the marks of a society that's failing is that the prophets, the priests, and I'm really just taking this from Hosea, I'm taking this from the book of Kings. The prophets and the priests, they become more concerned about telling people what they want to hear rather than what God wants them to know. And you have a number of false prophets, even in the Old Testament, who are, giving, who are getting information from lying spirits or from their own spirit. But Isaiah was a prophet. He told them not what they wanted to hear, but what God told him to tell them. And the last king he served sought him in two for it. You have a lot of people in our own society, a lot of people who, can, who comport themselves to be prophets or pastors or whatever, they only want to say things that people want to hear. God, give us men like Isaiah. Give us women like Isaiah. First, um, the first king Isaiah serves is Uzziah. Once again, Uzziah, he's a good king, one of the few good kings of Judah. And then you have Jotham and then Ahaz. Ahaz was a bad dude. We'll talk about the, uh, we'll talk about the context of chapter seven here in just a bit. But Ahaz is a man like any other man who doesn't know the Lord. He tries his best in his own ability to save himself. And there's this massive thing going on in his kingdom right now. You have two major armies bigger than his own at the doorstep. They've already taken several of his people as slaves. He's desperate. And Isaiah comes to him and tells him what God intends to do to save him from this. But Ahaz, he's a carnal man. He's a man who's only concerned about what the immediate concern is and not about loving the Lord, his God. He is lost. He's as lost as the kids that Bob was just talking about. His sin is obviously more destructive in this world, but his state of his heart is like the state of the heart of the people that are in chapter eight and nine who are in that deep darkness. So this Advent season, we are talking about missions. We're talking about Jesus is the greatest missionary who comes from heaven is sent to us because he knows that we can't save ourselves. There's this story about these two German men in, Moldo in, in Moravia. I always get the Moldovia, Moravia, whatever. Uh, Moravia. And they heard of this island in the West Indies owned by a British atheist. 
he owned about 2,000 to 3,000 slaves. And the owner said, no clergy, no preacher will ever stay on this land. If he is shipwrecked, we'll keep him in separate house until he, until he has to leave. But he is never going to talk to us about God. I am through with that nonsense. So these two men, they hear about two to 3,000 of these slaves who are being forbidden to hear the word of God. And they won't let any missionary. So what are you going to do when there's this problem? No missionaries being allowed there. So what can you do? So these two men, they decide in their hearts, okay, if that's what's going to happen, if the only people allowed on this island is slaves, we'll be slaves. Think of Jesus Christ in heaven. Though he was being very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Who knew of our lowly estate and condescends to be one of us. For only one who is fully God and fully man can bridge the gap between God and man. So they purpose in their heart, well, we're just going to travel there and we're going to sell ourselves as missionaries, sell ourselves as slaves. And we'll preach to the slaves as we are working the sugarcane fields with them. By the way, everything you've heard, the horror stories about Southern plantation slavery was worse in the sugarcane fields. I, I could tell you some horror stories, but I'm not, I'm, I don't really have a lot of time today. So they purpose in their hearts, we'll sell ourselves as slaves so we can preach Jesus to these slaves. And as they are sailing away with their friends and families looking on and they are thinking, I'm seeing these people for the last time. These two men with tears in their eyes, they link arms and they raise their arms and they shout to those on the shore, may the lamb who was slain have the reward for his suffering. How can we do less when we know we have the solution to the problem? So let's talk about this here, the verses that, that Becca has read. In verses 10 through 17, there's a request made, an answer to the request, and there's the solution. In verses 10 through 12, this is the request. Be, as we dive into chapter 7, we can read about, as we dive into chapter 7, we have to read about what's going on in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles chapter 28. The Reader's Digest version is this. King Ahaz seems to be doing well, at least in his point of view. But then all of a sudden, these two armies, one is Syria, not to be confused with modern Syria. This Syria really is lost to history, but it is called Syria at the time. And then you have another nation, it's Israel. And I didn't say that wrong. See, by this time in history, the kingdom has been divided. And you have the southern kingdom, which is Judah, and that's where Ahaz is the king of. The northern kingdom of Israel is above him, and their capital city is Samaria. And they are allying against their brothers and sisters. And you can read about this in Chronicles. You can read about this in Kings. Chronicles includes a, some, other, some other tidbits about how awful they feel about enslaving their brothers and sisters to the south. But they are attacking their very neighbors. So both of these armies are bigger than his armies. They've already taken over several cities he is trying everything he can to get himself out of this. He builds up his army. It's not enough. He takes gold from the temple of the Lord and he tries to bribe the king of Assyria with this gold. The king of Assyria doesn't care. You know what he even does? 
And I don't know if he did this for this blessing or another blessing, but this is chilling. He takes his firstborn son. He takes him to this place called the Valley of Hirnan. The Valley of Hirnan, I'm going to go reverse here. The Valley of Hirnan today is a place where there's an amphitheater over in Israel. And they play music, they have concerts. Before that, in the time of Jesus Christ, it was a garbage dump called Gehenna. In Gehenna, it's this garbage dump where they'd burn their trash. There was all kinds of filth and awfulness. And it's one of the words we translate in the New Testament for hell. One of three words we translate as hell. In Ahaz's time, they didn't burn their trash. They burned their children. And he takes his son, his firstborn son, whom he should love, and he puts him into an altar for an idol to a foreign God, believing that this God is going to bless him to get him out of this, this, this situation. And he burns his firstborn son alive. You know, I told you about how it's an amphitheater day. They do concerts. Back then when they would do this, see, if the father would start weeping, he would lose his blessing, so to speak. So they'd play music. They'd play music so loud you couldn't hear the screaming. What a better metaphor for hell there could there possibly be. That as we just do whatever we want, we look for blessing from everything besides the Lord God. We drown out the noise with as much sound, with as much music, as much distractions as we possibly can. That's Ahaz. That's before we even got into the scripture. That's the state he's in. And in verse 10, the Lord speaks to him the second time. God sends Isaiah to this wicked man. Does it seem weird that God would speak to the unfaithful? Well, he does speak to the unfaithful all the time. They're just deaf to his warnings and his love. In verse 9, Isaiah's first prophecy to Ahaz as he's telling him to wait on the Lord, that the Lord has a plan for this. He tells him, if you are not firm in the faith, you won't stand at all. So many times in families and organizations, amongst many people, the problem isn't really the problem. The problem, the root of the problem is the person or people are not right with the Lord. And that's the problem with Ahaz. And in verse 11, it says, ask a sign. This is the Lord speaking to Ahaz. Ask, ask a sign of the Lord, your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, that's the grave, or as high as the heaven. That would be the sky or the heavens, even beyond that. He tells him, ask for a sign. This doesn't happen all the time. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 4, Jesus says an evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign. But this is different. This is God asking Ahaz, ask me for a sign. Now, you and I, I mean, I hope you were paying attention when Becca was reading. We should have a certain amount of anticipation because he's about to give him the sign of all signs. This isn't like Gideon put, taking the fleece out, whether there's dew or not. This is the answer to every question everybody's ever had. And Ahaz doesn't even know it yet. So God tells him, ask me for a sign, make it as deep as the grave, high as the heavens. And he says, no. I will not tempt the Lord my God. I will, not, I, will, I will not put the Lord my God to the test. He sounds so very pious here, right? Very kind of like humble. It's a fake humility. It sounds a lot like even what Jesus says to the devil in Matthew chapter four, when he tells him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's similar words, completely different hearts. I see this all the time as a pastor. When I start zeroing in on somebody's real problem that they're dealing with, they want to spiritualize it as much as humanly possible. 
and they want to seem so pious. It's like, no, the problem is right here. So he, asks, he tells him, ask me, ask me for a sign. And he gives him this false humility. He says, I will not put the Lord, I will not, uh, um, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Who's asking him to ask? It is God himself. This is more in line with Malachi 3.10, in which the Lord says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and, therefore, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. <clears throat> God has something in mind here, something that is beyond imagination. Both in, both in Ahaz's time and in our time. Ahaz has a carnal mind. And he has no interest in God. God tells him the sky is the limit too. Not just the sky, but also the depths of the grave. And he responds back with that fake humility in verse 12. It's a rejection of the grace of God himself. And God rejects the proud. He gives grace to the humble. But those who want to, those who think they're good works or how much money they put into the offering plate, or anything else, how moral or virtuous they may seem online. Anybody who thinks it's anything about them, they don't want a sign. He doesn't want a sign, because if he has this sign and the sign comes true, then he has to follow the Lord, his God. And we have the ultimate sign today. So if anybody asks for a sign today, say, you've already gotten a sign. And if you don't believe that sign, you're not going to believe any other sign because you got Jesus Christ dead in the ground, three days, come back to life, now sitting at the right hand of the Father. If you don't believe that, you will not believe anything else. He asked him, the Lord asks Ahaz to ask him for a sign. He won't. So he's like, I will give you a sign. In verses 13 through 17, this is the answer. And he said, here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you have to weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. God answers his own question, but of course he does. No one could have ever asked like a, for a sign like this. The ultimate fulfillment of this sign is the answer to every major question the human race ever asked. The immediate fulfillment will do what Ahaz cannot imagine. The immediate fulfillment of this is that in the time it takes for a child to be born and to be raised before they're on solid food, those two armies he's losing his mind over, he's so afraid about, they're going to be gone. They're going to be just completely destroyed. Both of these nations go into the exile and they don't come back out. The northern kingdom of Israel... Their capital city was Samaria. They go into the exile. And when they come back out of the exile, there's, there's no northern kingdom of Israel. We call them in the New Testament, remember the good Samaritan? Samaria, and by the time of the New Testament, they're not considered Jews even, even though they have a biological link to other Jews. They're not even considered Jews anymore. So all these people he's worried about, that's the, that's the near fulfillment of this prophecy. The later on fulfillment is so much greater. But Ahaz, once again, his fake piety tells the Lord he doesn't want a sign. 
It's like the person who says, it's like the person who says, I want to believe God. I just can't. I've been trying to. And they think that that sounds so holy, so righteous. If we, if I treated you the way we treat God, you'd probably punch me in the face. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. Did I not hear someone say, ah, sir, I've been trying to believe for years. Terrible words. They make the case still worse. Imagine that after I had made a statement, a man should declare that he did not believe me. In fact, he could not believe me, though he would like to do so. I should feel aggrieved, certainly, but it would make matters worse if indeed he added, in fact, I have been for years trying to believe you and I cannot do it. That's what unbelief says to the Lord. You're such a liar. I just can't believe you. I remember reading this this week. I was actually doing some homeschooling with some kids and I was just like, I had to call my friend and tell him about it because I was like, you know, oftentimes because we don't want to offend people. In fact, we don't want to offend anybody besides God. When, when Isaiah says to Ahaz, okay, you've wearied men. Is it too little that you have to weary my God as well? Our generation is like, we want to focus on the God wearying part and not the man wearying part. We'll say anything we can so that people like us and we don't care if God's offended along the way. But that's what we're, because we are so in the state that when people say this, we don't actually say anything about it. We're like, okay, that makes sense. That's good. It's not good. You're saying that, once again, you believe God to be such a liar that for years you're trying. You really want to believe him. You just can't. And we treat God like he's some loser inviting us to his birthday party. Instead of the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who says, to the very house of Israel, that this will be the sign. We're afraid to tell people to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe the gospel. But Jesus' first sermon was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In this prophecy from Isaiah that the Lord is giving Isaiah, he, he addresses it not just to Ahaz, but to all of the house of David. O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? I feel like there might have been some editorializing in Isaiah's, in Isaiah's message here. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe he felt the incredible anger of the Lord and it was seeping through. God's like rolling his eyes at you now, man. In verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. If you've got a study Bible or a good Bible, or you just know the reference from the New Testament, you know Emmanuel means God with us. So God tells him the sign. The sign is not just a wonder, but it is a promise. It is, in fact, the fulfillment of all promises of all time. There's a near and far fulfillment to this sign. The near fulfillment is amazing. Those two nations utterly destroyed. But the far fulfillment is so much greater because we know the far fulfillment is Jesus Christ, the virgin birth. The far fulfillment of this prophecy goes beyond Ahaz to announce the miraculous virgin birth of Jesus Christ. We know this passage speaks of Jesus because the Holy Spirit says so in Matthew. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. We know this passage speaks of Jesus because the prophecy is not only addressed to Ahaz, but to David's entire house. We know this passage refers to Jesus because it says the virgin shall conceive and the conception would be assigned to David's entire house. 
Those who deny the virgin birth, and that's what I wanted to get to here when I started with Rob Bell and his, his suspicion that maybe the virgin birth isn't all it's cracked up to be, is that people will use the word in the Hebrew, which is not terribly specific, which is um, alma, which can be translated not just as virgin, but also as young woman. And in the near fulfillment, young women fits, but not in the far fulfillment, because the far fulfillment has been prophesied, attested by angels and man, that it is in fact, Mary knew no man, but conceived. She was a virgin and she gave birth and his name was Emmanuel. What's more, in the New Testament, when it repeats this very verse, when it repeats this very verse, it uses the Greek word that means nothing else other than virgin. What's more, every time this word is used in the Hebrew, it is referring to that of a virgin and not as a young maiden. We know this passage speaks of Jesus because, he's, um, because it says he'll be known as Emmanuel, God with us. This was true of Jesus. In fact, not only as the title, Emmanuel speaks of both the deity and the humanity of Jesus, his dual nature. And that's where I'm going to end. That's where I'm going to end this message today. We know the problem. The problem is that without Christ, we have nothing. We are in utter gloom. But we have Christ. We have Emmanuel, God with us. The answer to every longing heart. The answer to every question is Jesus, God with us. Every time I read the Old Testament, I make this note. I make a note every time it says God was with somebody because that's the difference. That's the change. The difference is not that believers go through less than people who do not know Jesus Christ. They go through the same things, but the Lord is with them. No wonder the devil tries to fill your life with so much noise, so much distraction. So when things show up, whether good or bad, you forget the whole point of everything around everything is Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. I say, if not every problem, when somebody comes to me, the biggest problem that comes is that they forgot that God was with them. That he is Emmanuel. That Christmas season is one of the most darkest seasons. Physically, there's just less light, but also mentally and spiritually. The number of suicides, of people being omitted for self-harm, skyrockets. Folks, we have a mission field when we get out of here. Every place we go. We have the hope of Jesus Christ, the line that shines, shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We have a mission field. And you know, also, we tend to forget as well that he's Emmanuel. One of the last things Jesus said before he returned to the Father, the last thing that Matthew records in his gospel. So Matthew, who's an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, the last thing he remembers of Jesus on this earth is Jesus telling them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all men. And the very last thing he says, behold, I am with you. You know the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh? Its literal translation is, I am. And what shall he be called? Emmanuel, God with us. I am with you always. The devil, your sinful nature in this world will do everything it possibly can to make you forget that very truth. To make you think you're just on your own. 
and that your problems are your problems and that there is no throne of grace for you to come to, to fall upon its mercy. He gets you to forget that when things are good so that when things are bad, you just feel completely abandoned. But today I'm telling you, he is Emmanuel, God with you. It is the solution. It is the answer to every problem. Worship team, would you come up at this time? There are three broad things you do when you preach a message. You explain to the congregation, what does the scripture text say? You explain what is the meaning. And finally, you answer the question, now how shall we live? Well, dear ones, you are missionaries. Go, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Tell people it's not just about a babe in a manger, but the babe grew up. He bled on a cross. He died. He was resurrected. He now sits at the right hand of the father. Repent and put your faith in him so that you may not perish, but have everlasting life. So then the second thing, how shall we live? How shall we live knowing that Jesus Christ promised to be with us to the very end of the age, that I can take whatever I'm going through and I come to the throne of grace with confidence and I can find mercy and grace there. I can cast all my problems on him because he cares for me. Worship team, would you lead us in our final song? As we go through this final song, I'd encourage you to do that very thing. Take your cares and put them on the Lord because he cares for you. Because he is here right now in the person of the Holy Spirit.